One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Hey, everybody. I'm Kim Holderness. And I'm Penn Holderness. And thank you so much for clicking on the Holderness Family Podcast. If you clicked on this, you've seen the title. It means that you are willing to listen to this conversation. And we we welcome all people who want to listen to this conversation. We hope that it's one that even if you disagree with us profoundly, that you will have the patience to learn from a different perspective. And the different perspective for us, we're going to be interviewing a former gun industry executive. And from my perspective, let me just tell you where I sit right now. Uh, For years, Penn has done the morning school drop-offs. And we never really talked about it. We just kind of fell into these roles. We call them secret contracts, right? Uh, I wake up early. I get the breakfast ready. I get the lunches packed. How I show love for people, it's by feeding them. So I'm happy to do that. He gets like a little bit more sleep and then does God's work by taking them to school. But here's the real reason why. If I pull up to their schools, all I can see is all the ways someone with a gun could do the unthinkable. And we just did a podcast about falling into a thought trap, and that is mine. It's hard for me to talk myself out of it. On the rare days I do drop-offs, I smile, I hug, I, you know, you never let them see you sweat. I do a thousand I love yous, but my heart is racing the entire time. There was a statement by Moms Demand Action, which is a really amazing group of run by women. And they say, if if gun violence hasn't impacted your community, just hold on, it will. And I definitely, I feel that. And we really are nothing but our own experiences. Mm-hmm. You're describing yours. Mm-hmm. I don't think you're alone in those thoughts and even in those thought traps. Uh, my experience is I, I don't fall into that t- thought trap, but I absolutely, I can see where my wife is coming from. And uh, I read the headlines just like she does. I find myself looking for common sense over and over again when it comes to this. If, if you were a listener to this podcast or a loyal viewer and reader of our content, you probably have figured out that on this issue, 
on gun violence and reform and the need for like common sense gun reform, we've been pretty outspoken on that, mm -hmm. right? We published a video and a blog post last week about gun violence. We urged people to call their local leaders asking for background checks on all gun sales. So a difference between the current background checks that are in place that have some loopholes and a, and a universal uh, law that's actually making its way through the house and the Senate. And so, you know, something specific we were, we, uh, it, it was actually cute. Uh, I don't, don't want to say cute, but Kim for Mother's Day did not want flowers. She wanted me to make a phone call uh, or several phone calls to our representatives. She even helped me out with a script because sometimes it's a good idea to do that. But when you get a real live person, you can just speak to them, which I also did. And, uh, and so we did that. Uh, we got a lot of comments and messages from people saying it helped urge them to call their representatives. A lot of people even sent us their screenshots of their call logs, which is really cool. Several creators with pretty large accounts even messaged saying they felt safer spreading the same message, seeing us do it. Because I think there's this, and people are like, oh, be careful, you're going to lose. It I doesn't matter. Like, you guys know that we're not at it for the numbers. Like, it doesn't matter. We're we, we are a family first. But also, of course, we got some feedback from the other side saying, we, we, you know, you're an idiot. We already have background checks. But we just wanted to do some housekeeping yeah. on that. Um, yeah, 100%. This is from the American Academy of Pediatrics. Okay. The current federal law. So there are background checks. Mm -hmm. That's true. But the current federal law requires background checks to be performed for anyone purchasing a firearm at a federally licensed gun, re gun dealer. Okay. Only 40% of guns sold in the U.S. are sold through federally licensed gun dealers. Yeah. Swaps, flea markets, other places. Gun shows. Gun yeah. shows, yeah. In, in most states- And private gun sales. Like right. you can get these on like Facebook Marketplace. Right. And in most states, right, those things are not subject to regulations and background checks. Also, states with universal background check laws require that all sales of firearms take place through a licensed dealer who can perform a background check prior to the sale, Okay. Only 13 to 50 states have this currently. And there are so many loopholes. Yeah. So so that's what we were talking about. So you can go through and some well-intentioned people, right? Saying, no, we already have, you know, I bought a gun and I had to go through so much rigor rigmarole. Yeah. yeah, because you did it the right way. We've heard Kim's feelings on this issue. I think that we're, I think that we've landed in a pretty similar place. But again, we are nothing but our experiences. I grew up, in North Carolina. I grew up around, our family didn't own firearms, but I grew up around guns because we have beautiful hunting lands mm -hmm. that have been well conserved, uh, particularly in the eastern side of our state. There is There are wonderful places to hunt for duck that you'll go out there and think, man, this is God's country. And there are incredibly responsible people right. who do that and, and, and they provide food. The, I, I'm, I'm sorry to vegetarians, but a freshly uh, cooked duck breast is unbelievable. Mm -hmm. But I also these people that I've grown up with, I think if I ask them and their parents, like they, they, they land with me on the fact that like, there is no reason we shouldn't push to have universal laws to make this as safe as humanly possible. Right. Um, just as a matter of fact, there are more guns than cars in this country. We are the most heavily armed, uh, you know, civilian armed country in this planet. Also, you would think, you know, there was this argument that guns will make you safer, but there have been more than 200 mass shootings across the U.S. so far. Um, probably by the time we publish this podcast, there will have been another. Um, and by the way, 
the definition of a mass shooting is an incident in which four or more people are injured or killed. We get some passionate and sometimes uh, respectful, sometimes a little edgy comments, uh, the issue being mental health mm. rather than the guns. I want to thank everyone who responds to, to what we put out there and know that we, we read everything unless it's hurtful or, or threatening and then we remove it. Uh, and that does happen. But for the most part, there were respectful comments. Um, I'm just going to read a couple of these. Basically, their issue being saying their issue is either mental health or like the lack of a moral compass that we have as a society. One person wrote, maybe they just need to enforce the current laws and fix our broken families and help those with mental health issues. Another person wrote, the vast amount of gun violence deaths are suicide. Can we shout from the rooftops that this is a mental health issue as loudly as we do about banning guns? And one person wrote, you can remove all the guns from the planet. Psychopaths will always find ways to commit violence. So let's ban cars, knives, baseball bats, or anything that can harm someone. So silly. This is like trying to cure cancer with band-aids. We feel like we're fairly equipped to try to answer some of these questions, but for those who, who called us uneducated and not knowing what we were talking about, we want to bring in someone who is very close to this. We wanted to talk to someone who used to work for the gun industry and was recognized, by the way, as a rising star during his time working for the gun industry, uh, who has since changed a lot of his philosophies based on what he saw in the gun industry. And we want to ask him the same thing that we just heard from these comments. Is it the guns? Or is it something else? Or could it be all of these things, right? How can we combat gun violence in this country? That's the underlying question that we have. Ryan Bussey is a Montana-based conservationist, public lands advocate, and former top-performing firearms executive. He grew up using guns and working on his family's ranch, where his father taught him how to hunt and shoot. In 1995, Bussey began a career in the shooting sports industry, and for the next 25 years, he served as vice president of sales for Kimber, one of the largest and most influential firearms companies in the country. Ryan resigned from that position in 2020 after he saw the gun industry taking stands that he didn't believe in. He's the author of Gunfight, My Battle Against the Industry That Radicalized America. In that book, he pulls back the curtain on America's multi-billion dollar gun industry, exposing how it fostered extremism and racism, radicalizing the nation, and bringing cultural division to a boiling point. He explores how America's gun industry shifted from prioritizing safety and ethics to one that's addicted to fear, conspiracy, and intolerance. Ryan, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Hey, thanks a lot for having me. It's important that we talk about this stuff, so thanks again. Let's start from the very beginning. Uh, you and I had very different childhoods. Uh, could you talk about where you grew up, how you grew up around guns on your family's ranch? Yeah, so that, and I and I hit this in the first part of my book, and I think it's, um, I did this, and I think my upbringing is important because, if you haven't noticed, we're kind of at a national chasm around guns and politically, and so I think it's important to understand kind of how gun culture um in a healthy way can grow up. And I think I'm illustrative of that. I grew up on a rural ranch in Western Kansas and kids on ranches and, and a lot of rural kids don't have a lot of time for fun. For me, when we did have time for fun, it often involved guns. So hunting and shooting with my dad or my brother, my grandfather. And those are very important, healthy cultural times for me. And they, and so guns came to represent sort of not just a thing, not like a tool, not a shovel, not a hammer, but they were uh, very illustrative of the culture and my upbringing because I had so many good times in and around them. 
Um, my grandfather, although he was a very proud FDR Democrat, he was also a proud NRA member. Um, my dad, a progressive guy, but didn't wear his politics on his sleeve. He too, uh, NRA member. And that was, you know, that was a time when the NRA and gun culture was a far more healthy, innocent thing than it is now. But, you know, that, that was the sort of place I grew up. And you're still a gun owner, to be clear. So I, I obviously, you know, I spend a lot of time selling guns. I shoot a lot. I own lots of guns. My boys who I write about in the book, or they also own guns and hunt with me. They shoot in shooting competitions. So yes, I'm, mm -hmm. I'm still a gun owner and, and um, believe in, in the right to own guns. Going from your childhood to college to your professional career, tell us why you chose to work for the gun industry. Well, I graduated from college. I was about ready to go to law school. I thought better of that at the last second. My wife still to this day tells me I would make a very good attorney. And I don't think she means that like in a very- And like that's a compliment? <laughs> Is it because of the conversations uh, you guys have that turn into spirited yeah. discussions? Exactly. Yeah. Okay, like, I gotcha. right, yeah. right, right at the end, you know, it's, it was some screaming a couple four letter words and you would make a really good attorney. <laughs> I gotcha. Um, yeah, but anyway, so maybe I missed my calling. But um, for me, I decided I, you know, I'd been in college. I wanted to do something in and around um, what I love to do. Mm -hmm. And I love to hunt and fish. And I thought, well, let, let, I'll try getting in the gun industry and mm -hmm. um, or the sporting goods industry. And so I did. And um, I played baseball too. And for me, it was kind of like making the major leagues, you yeah. know, like, gosh, I get to be in and around this stuff I love to do. And um, now, naively, I thought I was just going to get paid to go hunting all the time. And actually, it was a hell of a lot of work. But um, that was the sort of kind of childhood dream-ish thing you know, it, it's like, uh, I mean, one of my boys is a musician and it would be like him getting into the music industry, right? It yeah. would be like a dream come true. That's the way it felt to me. And what did you do exactly? Um, let everybody know what you did. Well, I spent, uh, I was, I first worked at an optics, a scope company, like a scope and binoculars rifle scope company. I did that for a couple of years. And then um, I was fortunate enough to get a couple of us started at this fledgling little gun company named Kimber and turned it into one of the largest Company, gun companies in the nation. And I, I served as vice president of sales. So I was a sales executive in the firearms industry for 25 years and four days, but who's counting? <laughs> hey, hang in there. We're going to be right back. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. May is Mental Health Awareness Month, and Talkspace, the leading virtual therapy provider, is encouraging people to talk it out in therapy. Opening up to a therapist might feel uncomfortable, cathartic, exhausting, or even exhilarating. But one thing's for certain, if you keep talking or texting with a licensed therapist, you will gain insights and uncover truths that you can only find in therapy. 
Get those personal breakthroughs and judgment-free support by signing up for Talkspace. At Talkspace.com, you can sign up online and get a personalized match with a provider that's right for you, typically within 48 hours. There's no need to commute to appointments, miss time at work, or line up childcare in order to attend sessions. It's mental health care made easy. Talkspace is also affordable and in-network with most major insurers. To celebrate May, Mental Health Awareness Month, and the power of talking it out in therapy, Talkspace is offering every listener of this podcast $80 off your first month with promo code SPACE80 when you go to Talkspace.com slash Holderness. To match with a licensed therapist today, go to Talkspace.com slash Holderness to get $80 off your first month with code SPACE80 and to show your support for the show. That's Talkspace.com slash Holderness with code SPACE80. Back. There was a period where you rose in prominence in exposure, which had to do with a, a Smith & Wesson decision, correct? Can you tell us about that? Yeah, so I write about that in my book, and I think that's <clears throat> looking back at it, and sort of the gist of the book is that, you know, I believe I lived inside the industry and sort of the cauldron where our national division that are broken down families and our hatred in workplaces and screaming at each other politically. Like I lived in the place where that was cooked up and I participated in some of it. And, two th- and I think a transformative time for our nation, kind of a little understood transformative time is this Smith and Wesson agreement that happened in the year 2000. Um, prior, prior to that, the gun industry was under threat of lawsuits, a lot like the cigarette industry was under threat of loss lawsuits from many cities. So, Lots of gun companies were feeling the heat about, should we settle? Should we find a way out of this? How do we get out of these suits? They, we might be sued into exi- out of ex- existence. Smith & Wesson, unbeknownst to anybody else in the industry, um, their CEO negotiates with the Clinton administration. Surprisingly to the rest of the industry, on, on a day, I think in April, he jumps up on the stage with Bill Clinton and says, we've come to a deal. We're going to institute these sales and marketing procedures. We're going to put this kind of lock on our gun, and we hope everybody else in the industry does it. See you later. Mm-hmm. And the whole gun industry was like, what just happened? Holy hell, we're going to be put out of business. And so like a kid, I liken it to like Pearl Harbor, right? It was as, as if we'd have been attacked, and I just unknowingly kind of raced into war um, in my mind, um, justifiably. And I organized, I helped organize a boycott against Smith and Wesson, basically ran them out of business. No other gun company signed up, although many were pressured to, we, in my mind, we kind of stopped the bleeding there. The CEO of Smith and Wesson, Ed Schultz was fired. Smith and Wesson was sold for a penance, um, not long after that. And so essentially, right. I canceled them. Right. We helped cancel. Yeah, because what, you, you cancel went culture. to gun dealers and encouraged them to not sell Smith & Wesson guns because in yeah. theory, they were trying to put these safety measures on guns. Correct. Yeah. 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 And, and it was what was the offensive thing to the firearms industry? And again, um, it's I, I'm I'm not this is not something I'm proud of doing, but it's something I felt like I had to be honest about in the book because it's so easy to be inside of something Mm -hmm. and feel like you're a part of something and feel like you're called to do something and feel like you're justified and moral and everything else and look back at it and think, holy sh**, it's exactly the opposite. And that's the way I feel now. But we we just rushed in to try to keep the evil federal government from telling the firearms industry what it had to do and when it had to do it. Uh, Thank you for your honesty on all of this and for explaining your self-assuredness and really taking us through where you were at that point. Let's get to the turn. What turned? Well, I don't really feel like I turned very much. I, uh, On one hand, I did all the things that I just described. 
But I was raised with, and many people in the United States still are raised with this deep appreciation for safety, for responsibility, for decency um, in and around guns. And when I got, even at this point in the industry um, that I just described, that, that was very prevalent in the industry. Even though I look back and I understand now that, and I certainly don't agree with the politics of the gun industry, there still was an understood decency. Um, there was a set of norms, very much like our politics of 25 years ago. You know, <laughs> you, you didn't agree with everybody, but there were just certain things, certain lines you didn't step across. For me, I realized I in 2004, um, the Bush administration was about ready to drill um, or wanted to drill in one of the most sacred places in, in my life and the sacred places in the country. It's called the Badger 2 Medicine. It's here in Montana, near where I live. It was part of the Cheney Energy Plan. And I thought hunters and fishermen, people like me, should be opposed to that. So I was called to give a press conference at the National Press Club in D.C. I did. I criticized the Bush administration pretty vociferously. And I was instantly attacked by everybody in my industry. And mm. I, I said, you know, what, wait a second. I'm just standing up for hunters and, you know, where, where we're going to use these guns. And they're like, yeah, but you're criticizing a Republican. And this is really what they were telling me is this is all about power and money. And right then the scales kind of fell from my eyes. I'm, I'm like, wait a second. So you're just duping everybody over power and money. This really isn't about morals or principles or the things you got me to run into war over. And, and, and it wasn't. And that combined with marrying a very powerful, introspective <laughs> woman who I'm still um, married to and is, it's not a bad thing to marry above your head, let's just say that. <laughs> um, that those two things really changed my life. And I spent the remaining, oh, almost 16 years of my career fighting against the, what the industry was becoming from the inside. Uh, talk to us about those conversations with your wife. I've read a little bit about it, but I'd love to hear how, what role she played in sort of your, I would say, change of heart, change of profession. Well, I, um, I came to this place where I thought that I could do good and also do well at the same time. In other words, I, from inside the industry, I could help nonprofits. I could do conservation, environmental nonprofits. I knew it was fraught with peril, but I could do these things. My wife, Sarah, never, ever lost focus on the doing good part. And she realized early on that the firearms industry, as it was being led by the NRA, had really completely divorced itself from doing good. You know, the sort of racist dog whistles that came from LaPierre after 2000, after 9-11, the sort of reprehensible statements and policies that happened after mass shootings like Sandy Hook, when, you know, LaPierre waited a few days and then said, the only thing that will stop this is more people with guns. And every time I came home from those or took phone calls from Sarah, she called me one of the most troubling times our boys were the same age as the kids in Sandy Hook when that happened. And she had just dropped them off at school when that news was hitting the radio. I think she was listening to NPR that day. I was going to work at a gun company that day. Mm -hmm. And, you know, those sorts of <laughs> inward looking conversations mixed with a fair amount of justifiable emotion were pretty powerful. You just described a very similar situation to what we began this podcast, which with which was my wife having anxiety to this day and asking me to do school drop-off because of mm -hmm. that reaction that she has. I think it's a powerful 
frightening. You know, the firearms industry now and so many of the leaders and influencers like to say this is all about freedom and freedom, freedom, freedom. And that's all it is. And I think, well, parents aren't even free to drop their kids off at school without freaking out. Kids in Uvalde aren't free. Those families in Allen, Texas aren't free. Like it's it, it's not patriotic mm-hmm. to scream freedom and not worry about anybody else's freedom. So I, I've I, I think we're at a perilous point in the country, and I and I'm I'm sad that it's the firearms industry that put us here. I think it is. Um, I wish that wasn't the case because I had this childhood dream, and I think it didn't have to be that way. So we've been pretty outspoken in favor of the most basic common sense gun reform on this platform and things like universal background checks. And we get a lot of blowback of, oh, they already have background checks, but we know there's so many loopholes. We know there's so many ways to buy a gun without a background check. But 87% of people support uh, gun owners, I think, support (laughs) universal background checks. And any responsible gun owner I've ever talked to, most people in my family have guns. They support this. Why has it not happened? Well, it's it's because what I write about in the book is true, right? The entire right-wing radicalized ethos, not the not the majority of people on the right, not even the majority of Republicans. It's a it's a 15, 20, 25% of that cadre that sort of controls both the politics and gun culture. They have the mic and nobody is uh <laughs> nobody is courageous enough to take it from them. And to your point, like as I've mentioned, you, know, you mentioned background checks pull at 85, 86, 87%. I mean, good God, ice cream doesn't pull at 87%. Okay. <laughs> I mean, come on. Um, how is it possible? Like, it's just not even conceivable that that can't pass. The, the best analogy I can give you is this is the issue that the Republican Party is now built around. It is the totemic issue of the Republicans. And so if you're thinking of it this way, it's like a beam in the Republican House and there's lots of asbestos in it and people are looking at it every day going, well, over time, that's going to give us cancer. It's flaking off. We should probably do something about it. Yeah, I know. I mean, it's it's horrible. Asbestos is bad. And then somebody says, but if we pull that beam out, the whole house comes crumbling down. They're like, yeah, yeah, screw it. Let's just live with the asbestos. Mm. That's what it's like. It's It's easy to be against the asbestos. It's a lot harder to be against the beam pulling it out if you believe that your entire political culture is built around this thing. And that's why it pulls one way and will never and can never pass because it is that totemic beam. Every time you talk about the beam, the cancer, you mentioned the cigarette industry. We're, we're in North yeah. Carolina. I grew up with the smell of cigarettes, uh, <laughs> yeah. of tobacco in the air, cured tobacco in Durham, North Carolina. Over time, they have found ways to at least enforce the dangers of nicotine in tobacco. I'm sure you've looked at this industry as a parallel to that. And I'm sure you've also seen some of the warning signs that people saw in big tobacco and swept under the rug. And I'd love to know some of your personal stories about that. Yes, it's it's a huge, near perfect comparison for lots of different ways. First off, We changed the culture around cigarettes. We didn't change the freedom, right? Tomorrow, if you wish, you can rush down to the store, buy as many cartons of cigarettes as you want to buy. Nobody's stopping you from doing it. We didn't ban them. We didn't take it. We didn't go into people's houses. We didn't steal their cigarettes. All these all or nothing isms that are now part of our political discussions in and around guns, they didn't materialize around cigarettes. 1987, 
was the first time we passed a nationwide uh, cigarette law, and it was to outlaw smoking on flights of two hours or less. So an hour and 59 minutes flight, you could smoke. Two hours, you could not, right? It's laughable to think about that. Dude, I still remember. I remember flying. You still still hear the warnings, right, on the planes. They're like, who's who's smoking? Um, But it's not that long ago. I mean... I remember going into bars not that long ago. We're like, geez, I'm going to have to wash my clothes three oh, times I, after this. I, I'm honestly, I we, I mean, we are probably around the same age. And yeah. if you went to yeah. a bar at that time, you, I had to shower when you came home. Are you going to? Yeah. Anyway, continue. And so, just think about culturally what we did from 1987, not that long ago, to now, and we've massively changed the culture in and around cigarettes. You, you don't like when you. Somebody, you know, smokes in a, if they were to smoke in a plane, could you imagine the uproar? And that was, that used to be commonplace. Yet we didn't ban anything. We simply changed the way our culture views freedoms, the way it views freedoms of other people. I mean, what about the people that have to breathe that secondhand smoke? And I think that is not a perfect, but somewhat of a pattern for, for the way this must happen in and around guns. We're not going to ban guns this, and nor do I want to, I I'm, I'm, a, a gun owner, but we have to change the culture of irresponsibility and worshiping, you know, guns as a, as a political and identity totem. And because if you think we're in a dark place now, and I think we are in a pretty dark place with regards to guns, 190 mass shootings in 180 days or whatever it is, you know, so far this year, it's going to get far worse. So I'm a little type A. I'm an Enneagram one. I like a rule. I've never met a list I didn't love. So I'm an eight, I, by the way. Okay. <laughs> so I want, I, I just, I want to know from your perspective, reasonably, mm-hmm. what do you think our country is capable of doing to get this under control? And if you tell me nothing, I'm going to cry. So not, well... Okay, I'm going to give you a, a couple answers that you're probably going to hate given your Enneagram. But <laughs> first off, we got into this through 30 years of incremental um, bad slash irresponsible decisions, um, a series of them. And it's it's very unlikely that any one particular decision at this point is going to reverse 30 years of uh, a lots of bad decisions. We have 400, you know. Wherever you drive around today, um, notice how many vehicles there are. There are 267 million registered vehicles in the United States. Seems like a lot when you're on most of the roads. There are 415 million guns. So there's 150 million more guns than there are cars in the United States. That's that's the, that's the truth of the situation. That means whatever problem you experience um, in society right now with guns, it ain't going away tomorrow. Um, we have to start doing what people responsible, decent citizens in democracies like ours must do, do the hard work in the gray space. There isn't a, this is a bad, bad term, but there is no magic bullet, right? There isn't a thing we can do. We can do some things. Universal background checks would be a good start. Raising the minimum age to buy semi-automatic rifles from 18 to 21, because there is a holdover in our law. You have to be 21 federally to buy a handgun. You can be 18 and buy an AR-15. Why is that? Because 20 years ago, almost all the rifles that were sold were hunting guns. And and th- that law is written so that, you know, a kid can get a hunting rifle and go hunting with his dad. Now, almost all the rifles that are sold are AR-15s. In other words, our country has changed a lot. Our laws have not kept up with it. Would raising the minimum age to 21 solve everything? No. But the kid in Buffalo was 19. The in kid Uvalde, in Uvalde was 18. Yeah. 
Um, and, and so you see, we tick off these ones and twos and threes, much like we did with cigarettes. We didn't pass. We didn't do a single thing on cigarettes. We did a few things. We put labels on. We changed where you could smoke. We and so over time, the culture took hold of that. I think. I think we have to look at that as a pattern. You mentioned uh, identity totems, yeah. and I think that to me is interesting. I have a story about my interaction with guns that has a little bit to do with that. I think when you say identity totem, you mean that kind of feeling of freedom that you get or, or power or whatever it is uh, that you have by owning a gun. I'm not sure if that's what you're referring to, but I, I went to a shooting range with a buddy of mine. He called me. He's like, Hey, you want to go to a shooting range, Ben? And I was like, okay, I'll, I'll go to a shooting range. I, I went there because I felt like, Oh, that seems like if I'm going to have an interaction with guns, that's going to be about as safe of a place as I can go. And yeah. I can confirm that when I was there, the, oh, they gave me an AR-15. They're like, do you want to shoot an AR-15? I was like, this is the gun that people have been talking about. Okay, I'll, I will. There were so many uh, security protocols around that I had to, I had to get a, I think I had to get a background check just to, to do it. Um, I, if I pointed the gun anywhere, anywhere close to not downrange, the, the entire thing was shut down. Um, yep. Uh, I got the opportunity to fire the gun and I was like, Ooh, this does have like a feeling of, of power to it. It's a different kind of feeling. Another part of my brain was terrified. Cause I, 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 I got off like eight shots in two seconds. It was really, really fast. Um, yeah. and, but the part that was interesting to me, not only the number of safety protocols, but the people that were there with me who were kind of watching over it, they were like pretty good feeling, huh? And I was like, yeah, this feels like a, this is an interesting feeling. And he goes, it's better than sex, isn't it? And I was like, <laughs> um, no. <laughs> perhaps that perhaps it's not. That gentleman, it, perhaps that gentleman is not living a fulfilled life. Well, so, but to me, like, I think that that that's part of the marketing of guns. Am I wrong? So there's so much there Pan, about that that particular story. It's so rich with lessons we should learn. First off, same thing happens in gun companies, right? Gun companies who lobby. And our partner with the NRA to ri to rid us of all restrictions in the nation or in and around guns. If you walk in and shoot a gun in a gun company, you are locked down. Same as you, you do a background check. You have safety gear on. You have a range officer with you. As you said, if you screw up one time in that range, it's like the, like warning bells come on. The whole place comes to a stop. And so the same sort of safety protocols that are insisted upon inside ranges and gun factories are somehow not okay for for the rest of America. I don't understand that. What I'm talking about with regards to identity is that feeling taken now to the next level where somebody wears the AR-15 on their shirt, they put it on the a back pen. of their truck. Mm -hmm. They they then have a flag that they march on January 6th saying, um, you know, there were all kinds of flags at January 6th. They were political and Trump flags. And then one other type of flag. AR-15 flags. That's mm -hmm. the only thing. There were like no Makita drills. Weird. No Chevy <laughs> trucks. I didn't see those. There were AR-15s. Why? Because nothing sends the sort of totalitarian political intimidation message like an AR-15. It's like a humongous middle finger. And that is not responsible gun co culture. If you are owning or displaying or using a gun or gun imagery to intimidate people, as your identity to try to tell people how you own them or how you're going to scare them or how you're going to rule over them or God forbid, how you're going to shoot them. That has nothing to do with responsibility. So 
we uh, anytime we post about these things and we'll post about this and we'll get a we'll get a lot of people who disagree with us who won't listen but assuming there are people who are listening and people in our lives friends and family members who disagree with us wholeheartedly should we attempt conversations with them or should we do the thing that has become so often which is just you know block ignore like what is the best way for a reasonable reasonable person to have a reasonable interaction with somebody who dis disagrees. So I think, um, and the reaction to my book is illustrative on this. You know, I thought we were really worried. I live in a very um, gun-friendly part of the country. I'm Northwest Montana. I'm happy to do that. I was worried when the gun came out about the safety of our boys. They go to public school. I was worried about snipers on top of the hill above our house. I was worried about our digital safety. I was worried about Sarah and I going to the grocery store. I was definitely worried about the stuff that would come in my mail. And exactly the opposite has happened. Mm -hmm. There are thousands of people who have written letters and long emails and grammatically correct notes and heartfelt, you know, direct messages saying, thanks for doing this. I'm a gun owner. I can't take it anymore. This stuff is irresponsible. In other words, I think that we have to engage people that that kind of disagree, because I think there's a lot more agreement on this than the political sort of hypersphere lets us think we've got loud people with microphones that tells us that this is the way gun culture is. I don't think that's the way it is for most people in the country. And they, the irresponsible ones need to be confronted. If you know that like crazy uncle Bob that says I've got my gun and I'm going to the white house. No, 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 no. Last beer for you, Bob, you're not coming back to Thanksgiving anymore. That has to be confronted. The rest of it needs to be talked about because people like us needs to need to know there's a safe space for responsible dialogue and for again for the for the hard give and take in the gray space of democracy we 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 already said there is no the reason this breaks down is because the reason is the same reason so much of the rest of our politics breaks down the NRA has successfully reduced this down to a zero sum yes or no black or white argument and that's not what this is mm-hmm. there, I, I there mean, are even- lots of gun owners in America and they're and they as long as we're responsible and respect other people's freedoms, it can work. Yeah. I would even say the power of the NRA is that um, we've done we've done several posts about you know asking for people to call their representatives um, for for example to ask for universal background checks, and people we were getting tagged on some NRA pages to say like okay at eleven o'clock go to their page and com- it's called comment bombing, and yeah. you would just see. A thousand comments that were all it was all copy paste copy paste they're saying the same thing over and over again and so but like that's the sort of allegiance that and and so people like oh it doesn't overwhelm you i'm like they're basically bots but uh, very coordinated so so i but i'm like i don't want people to engage with that side of that side of it because it's it's not going to do any good but there there is some gray space you're totally right can that's the loud that's the loud microphone right and that's that's also the way our politics works now. If you, like, if you, if you've noticed on the right side of the political aisle, on the Trump side of the political aisle, it's not really profitable for those folks to speak out because basically they get that comment bomb in political terms, right? It's that's the way a totalitarian culture works. Any dissent is shouted down, mm-hmm. and it makes it look it makes it look like you guys are tiny, just a couple people, and they're millions. And that's not the way it is. <laughs> that's just right. I know it's not. Yeah. As someone who's become a national voice on this, you, you've mentioned some of the support you've gotten. How and hopefully there are a lot of respectful conversations. How are you and your wife feeling being a, a voice in, in an incendiary uh, space well, like this? So I felt like for quite a while, 
in, in the story and the stories in the book as I was doing this sometimes covertly, but I was taking a lot of risk. I feel like I have been for 15 years in some way, this just feels like a natural progression of that. There is a lot more attention. There have been a few uncomfortable threats and, you know, I, I the same sort of stuff that you guys probably occasionally get quite a few four letter words mixed with some pretty colorful accusations and sometimes weird sexual innu innuendos that I don't know where they come from, but that, that, that part is uncomfortable, but I don't feel like we had a choice. I don't feel like Sarah and I don't sit around going, gosh, what if we wouldn't have done? I, we just, I just don't think that way. It's important. I feel like our, our country and our culture and our kids are in a perilous position. I had to do it. I didn't have a choice. We just don't spend a lot of time worrying about what ifs, you know. I think right now the battle cry from the people who disagree with us uh, right now is it's a mental health issue. And to which I reply, well, obviously it's a mental, I mean, it's yes, it's a yes sure. and, yeah. it's it's both. Uh, do you have a good reply, response to those folks? Because I'm sure you've heard that too. Well, that is kind of generally correct. I did a, I spoke on a panel at the LA Times, LA Times um, book festival not long ago with Mark Fullman, who's written a book on this called Trigger Points. While generally what you say is correct, and we can all say anybody who would commit mass murder has some sort of mental deficiency, right? But the people that do this in large part are not identifiable in mental health circles the way that, that these assertions think they are. Like, they're sane. They plan. They sit at home. They map this out. It's not like they're schizophrenic. I, I mean, occasionally, occasionally somebody is. But the reason that this is not easy to catch is because, well, even like this guy in Allen, Texas, he bought these guns legally. Yeah. Um, he was a at one time a licensed security guard. It's it's not like he's raving on the street corner and foaming at the mouth like we can all see him. That's not. I think when people say it's a mental health problem, you think it's identifiable like that. It's not. It, it's some it, it's some sort of psychological breakdown inside of our culture, and that's a lot harder. It's not like people just walk around with flags like, hey, I'm getting ready to be a mass shooter. That's not the way it works. Yeah, I don't know if you saw the interview with the parents of the shooter at the bank shooting in Louisville, and it was, it was yeah. heartbreaking to watch. But these really loving parents who had, you know, this kid in his 20s, and, you know, they had him in with a, he, he had a lot of severe anxiety. So they had him with a psychiatrist, a psychologist, you know, he called his mom the week before it, he, he had had a panic attack, she got his therapy moved up. I mean, he, the day before he had Easter with 60 of his relatives, and he was helping kids find eggs. I mean, you or you're, I mean, there were, of course, I mean, I have anxiety. Right. I've been to therapy, but it's, right. so, but somewhere to your, I mean, yes, it's a mental health issue, but this kid was getting the support. He was getting counseling. He, he had checked all the boxes, yep. presumably. So yet, and it's a, ask anybody at that Easter gathering, gosh, do you think this kid will be a mass murderer tomorrow? No, not a single one would said yes. Yeah. Right. And, and so it's, I think it's a, I guess what I'm getting to, it's a cop out to say it's a mental health problem. Of course, of, I don't mean to, to mean it's normal, but to, to say it's a mental health problem to just say, oh, gosh, all we have to do is just like, and then you say, what exactly? Like, what what is it you're going to do? Like, take everybody at that Easter gathering and put them in, in the clink until like it's not it's there is no like feasible way to fix that. We've taken a lot of your time and we're so grateful for it. Again, Enneagram one and me because um, <laughs> I it was daunting to hear you say 
it's going to take years and years and years of this because I feel our kids are roughly around the same age. My daughter's 16, my daughter, my son's 13. And I just don't, I mean, they're, this is going, this is their life, you know, right now. And I, I want to take that away, uh, but I know I'm not going to be able to, but what are the things that normal people who are listening to this podcast who don't work in politics can be doing, calling about, and should be asking for in conversations and from their representatives? I guess a couple things. One, you have to be um, willing and willing to vote on this right now. That's basically the issue. That's why it doesn't happen is because in the simplest of terms, politicians don't believe that people who are concerned about this will vote. And they do believe that the ardent, loudest people with the mic that we talked about will vote. Okay. That, that's just those are the simple tools. I also think whenever you hear this all or nothingism in the debate, like, oh, you just want to take guns or, oh, it's a slippery slope or like, stop that. That is good people and good policy lose every time that debates are simplified like that. This is not a simple debate. We must do incremental things to make things better. That And, and that's all we're ever going to do. And that's all we do in any area of our lives. So step up and speak up about that. Okay. Do you think that there is a way to follow that pattern of culture change that they did with tobacco? Do you think with the word we I do. We were once there. That's that's the point in my book. Twenty years ago, it was imperfect, right? But but we didn't count mass shootings by the dozens. Um and and that was because there were certain voluntary norms that the industry and gun owners knew not to cross. Like AR-15s were legal, but proliferating them with irresponsible marketing into every nook and cranny of the country seemed irresponsible. And guess what? It's proven to be pretty irresponsible. It wasn't a law that forced that. It was conscious breakdown of norms and decisions. That, that So, you know, there's a lot of talk. The, the beauty of MAGA, Make America Great Again, is that there's a comfort in going back to something that we once did. That's that, That's the psychological safety in that. Well, if we have that comfort, we can go back to a time of gun responsibility like we once had not all that long ago. Some laws need to codify that, but we also need to find our footing on social norms. That being said, what are your feelings on the AR-15? I it, it, Well, in which way? Like, I mean, do it, you think that, uh, that, that I, I should be able to go out and buy one? I think that we're not going to change that reality anytime soon. There's about 35 million of them in the United States. I think we need to treat them like what they are and quit saying that they are just like every other gun. They are not just like every other gun. They are an offensive weapon of war. That's what they were designed to be. And they're very, very effective at it. I tell people it's very much like the difference between just a regular car and a Formula One race car. They both have steering wheels and four wheels and you know an engine. So in that way, they're both cars. But one was designed to go somewhere very fast, corner, accelerate exceptionally quickly, and do you think it would be a great idea to throw a bunch of 16-year-olds in Formula One race cars with no stop signs in the streets? I don't. I'm not saying that Formula One race cars should be banned and we should never have them, but we should treat them like what they are. And I think we are not <laughs> we're we're kidding ourselves by telling everybody that these guns are just like every other gun. They're not. So knowing how many are out there, I mean, do you see a, so there won't be a ban on an AR-15. You don't think that's realistic? No. I, I don't think that's going to politically, I don't think it's realistic. There's 30 million of them in the United States. And um, politically, I, I see no, 
I see no prospect for that happening. And so raising the age you think is just the most realistic thing. That's something, right? That's one of these incremental things we're talking about. Well, that doesn't take people's guns away. In the in the last 10 or 15 really high-profile, horrific mass shootings, it would have stopped two or three or four of them. Again, not all of them. But again, we're talking about clicking off, doing the things that, you know, make things better. It it, it it's, it's sort of like losing weight or getting in shape. Like, you don't just, like, go to the gym and it's fixed. Like you start on it, you work on it. It's it's a goal. You do a few things every day. That's what we have to do here. I know, I know. <laughs> so uh, my my uh, so That's Ryan, so that that Ryan, you were. I think is, your wife and I could probably hang out. Yeah. Um, but I think that you you were. But I I'm so thankful for this conversation because it's more realistic than the conversations I have with a lot of angry moms. And, but, and, but, and I don't yeah. want to take people's guns. I say that out loud, but I don't think that you need an AR-15. I think you're yeah, a really so crappy I, I, hunter if you think you need it. I think Well, that- it's it's not it's a it's a it's chambered in a small round. It's not a good hunting gun. The idea that it's sold and marketed as a hunting gun honestly is is a joke. It's not that it can't be used for hunting, but you could use anything for hunting. That's not what it's for. It's again, it's back to the Formula One thing. It's specifically designed to do something. And I know a lot of moms, a lot of dads don't want to hear this. I've had anxiety dropping my own kids off at school and my kids hunt and shoot. And, you know, you know, we're these people. Sarah often has this. I do want to be honest with people, though. You need to prepare yourself. We have set up a system that is going to propagate a lot more days, a lot more very bad, sad days like we've had this year and the last few psychologically, you just need to prepare yourself. There's going to be a lot of Allen, Texas days. There's going to be more Uvalde days. It's just, and and that's a, it's because this is a big ship and it turns slow and we have put it on the water and this is the direction our country has picked. We must pick a different direction. But, the, but turning that boat takes work and it takes time. So just, you know, hang together, give everybody a hug, understand where we're headed love our neighbors and and do the things that we need to do to protect the rights of all of our neighbors, not just our own particular freedoms. Because again, we're, I, I, I'm not trying to be a naysayer, but we're headed for some dark times. Uh, I know that's the most, uh, I know it's tough. It's really hard to hear. I think that's what it's, it's very realistic and I need yeah. to hear it because every time there's one of these shootings, my um i just i lose a day and you but here's the thing <laughs> i used to use i used to lose three days right a so week, right? Yeah, yeah so I, I used to lose, so sandy hook forget it i was out um yeah. and and every shooting after that it's like it my my nervous system would just um look it's it, we we are i guess what i want to say is thank you we cannot normalize it we cannot and we already are. Yeah, like, I mean, the said, fact that it only takes me one day to like, I heard about Allentown uh, and the, Allen, Texas, and I was like, "Wait, did that happen last week, or is this new?" Oh, yeah. and then like, I, it only took me a day of just being on the couch and wallowing. So, so we have it's real simple. It, you, you don't have to be a genius to know this. We're putting roughly seven times more guns into the general public every year than we did in the year 2006, seven times. We have reduced regulation in 28 states. Almost between two and three million 
AR-15s every year into into the general population when we used to put you know a few tens of thousands. That's the big ship we have created, and we have lots of hatred, lots of mental instability, lot you know all sorts of things in this country, and so that's the system that we've created. The outcomes are going to be as any sane person would think they are going to be. We have to do the things to start undoing that system, and, and it's not going to be easy. And it, it, you know, social change takes time. The civil rights movement took 40, 50 years, and we're and gosh, we're still unraveling. <laughs> apparently, we're still in the middle of it. You know, yeah. um, it's it's hard work. But there have been culture changes in all those places. Yeah, there have. Exactly. There's there there's been a culture change in tobacco. There was a culture change in civil rights. Certainly not fixed, but there's been a culture change. Yeah. There was, yeah. there, there's even a culture change in football. <laughs> there is actually, yeah. Which is, yeah. which is in like, that is something that I, they're all the same thing. They're all like, this is a problem. It's subversive. Yeah. No one really like talks about it the way that they should. People notice things, but they overlook them to protect a robust economy. Yeah. And so that's the part that's really depressing to to me and i know obviously it's tough for my wife to well there's a huge huge economy wrapped up in the gun thing now and that's and i write about that in the book right that this all is now wrapped up with quarterly capitalism then and that 20 years ago that was not the case now you have gun companies that are huge billion dollar companies and billion dollar companies do what it takes to make the next quarter like salespeople in i mean just look at big pharma there's lots of stories very sad ones there about what's happened when quarterly capitalism is wrapped up with pharmaceutical industry. The firearms industry is now in the same place and you have this big companies that must do what it takes to meet the next sales number, including very irresponsible marketing practices. And I write about them in the Atlantic and some in the book, things like telling young kids that they get their man card back if they buy an AR-15 so they can make the next quarter. Like we we have to step in and stop that. It's just not responsible. So, okay. I, I, um, you know, at the end of the day, I am an optimist and I, I cling, I think hope is the hardest part, right? It's the hope that'll kill you. Right. And then what? Yeah. yeah. Ted Lasso. (laughs) No. Uh, but it's the hope that'll kill you. So I think that, um, but you're saying there is hope. Well, I'm saying there's hope because what, what, what's the alternative? And and not only am I saying there's hope, like this did not this did not like fall out of from out of space on us like it's not like gravity well we have to deal with it no this is something we chose this is something we made the, we put these bricks together um american citizens did this american citizens can change the way the bricks are uh, uh, piled on the wall it, it's not it's not immovable it's mm-hmm. just we've chosen not to move it so to me that's very optimistic it's it's not you know it's not like age. <laughs> you know, yeah. I can't change age. I, I think it's uh, it's really daunting because you get it. You know, you have a job and a family, and you have all this stuff to keep keep track of. And I think there, when I was growing up, at least, you know, my parents are divorced now, and this would explain. It, but my dad was a you know very proud Republican, and my mom was you know famously Democrat. But it was almost a joke. I mean, they it didn't. That's not why they got divorced. I mean, it was yeah. we didn't really talk about politics in our house and and there has been sort of this mood of like oh i don't talk about politics and even people who follow our page are like oh you're getting political i just I, it's one of those things where everything is political exactly. i mean i mean the speed limit you drive the food we're allowed to buy the food we can't buy things like everything is politics life is politics and i yeah. think it's daunting to think that 
we probably just need to, as citizens, all become, if, if this is something you're passionate about, become a little more involved and a little louder. It sounds I, so. I'll, I'll I'll say this. I think this is the penultimate issue. I really do. I believe that whether you care about women's reproductive rights, the environment, um, public schools, education—I I don't care what it is. It is all now controlled by this all-or-nothingism that the NRA perfected and handed off to our political system. And if you want to undo that, and and that's why, again, that's why the right picks guns and gun culture and gun symbolism as their central totem because nothing conveys all or nothingism or totalitarian power like that if you want to make things better and not have people screaming at each other in school board meetings and women's reproductive rights and everything else start to work on this gun issue whether you are really into the gun issue whether you're tired of it whether it makes you sad which i completely appreciate because i've had lots of tears myself but we have to figure out a way to undo this and make this better, or I'm not real sure the rest of our politics are going to follow suit. That feels like a good place to stop. Thank you. Thank you so much for your time, Ryan. Thank you for the courage that it takes to, to spearhead this platform. And thank you for telling it like it is. I think that honest conversations are the, the, I think they are the bedrock of culture change. And you are, you are setting an example with that, including saying things that sometimes we don't want to hear, particularly. Well, thank, thanks for all that. Um, thanks for the work you guys do. And, and thanks for having me on. And thanks to your wife, Sarah. Yeah. For, I'm she's, sure. She's, make- the real, she's the real <laughs> badass and hero. So. Yeah. I mean, for honestly, to call your husband at a job that probably play, paid really well and said, get out, what are you doing? Yeah. I think that takes a lot of gut. So thank you to Sarah. Oh, okay. We're obviously going to be linking your book in our show notes, but where else can people find you and support you? I've got an author page, just ryanbusseyauthor.com. And I don't know, I'm, I, I, I might come to a town near, your, who, who, near you. Who knows? Okay. Well, if you do, if you're ever in North Carolina, please let us know. I love North Carolina. I hope to see you there. Okay. Thank you. Thank you once again to Ryan Bussey for that really honest conversation and for saying the hard things and doing the hard things. And, you know, anytime we interview anybody, I I try to approach it out of pure curiosity and I try not to assume, you know, know, how it's going to go. But I, I was sort of assuming he'd have a five-point plan on how to fix this and how we could fix this within the next two years. But that may, not, mean, that may not have been honest or, I know, or even I know. feasible. I, Obviously, I'm yeah. exaggerating a little bit because I know well, it's very complicated. But. I, I'm, I'm grateful for his brutal honesty. Um, I think that when, first of all, I, I want to address one moment where he gave the answer that you probably didn't want to hear, which is that nothing's going to change soon and there's going to be more mass shootings. And all that our listeners heard was a very long exhale and I bet a lot of people were doing the exact same things when they did it. And then Ryan, so Ryan laughed. And the reason why Ryan laughed, he wasn't laughing at you. He was, he was saying, I know exactly what you just said with that exhale. Yeah. That was a thousand words. And he's with you on that. And a lot of people are because that exhale represents the spot that we're in, right? It's, I, the, it's the reality and the spot that we're in. And I think that he represents not who we are. Like we, we are not 
gun owners because we know statistically if there is a gun in your house, you're more likely to shoot somebody in your house than an intruder. It's, you know, when you look at the CDC, it lists the cause of death for children and accidents and like the gun accidents are so common. So that is not something that that we tangle with. He brought up freedoms. I, I don't get how freedoms of gun owners have superseded freedom, my freedom. My freedom to, you know, my daughter asked to go to a concert on Saturday night at this great outdoor venue in our area. And I said no, because I feel like it would be so easy for somebody to drive by and do something terrible. And so it has changed our freedoms. It has changed the way we've lived our lives. So I just don't get how their rights have superseded mine. I'm going to get off my soapbox. (laughs) If you disagree with me. I hope that you've listened to this podcast and I hope we can have some respectful conversations because there have been some really respectful conversations in the comment section. And for that, I'm really proud. Thank you for listening. This is out of love because we love you guys and we love your children and we love your babies. And um, we just want people to stay safe. Thanks for making it to the end of this. It means a lot to us. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.